from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning. My name is Rick Bold. I'm an elder currently serving on the session here at First Pres. Please join me in the call to worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits. The Lord has made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord works vindication and justice for all who are oppressed. As far as the east is from the west, so far God removes our transgressions from us. God has forgiven all of our iniquity and has crowned us with steadfast love and mercy. Come, let us worship God.
Our scripture reading this morning come from, comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 27, verses 1 through 11, which can be found on page 141 of the Old Testament portion of your pew Bibles. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Then the daughters of Zelophehad came forward. Zelophehad was a son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, son of Joseph, a member of the Manessite clans. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in what they are saying. You shall indeed let them possess an inheritance among their father's brothers and pass the inheritance of their father onto them. You also shall say to the Israelites, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall pass his inheritance on to his daughter. But if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. It shall be for the Israelites a statute and an ordinance, as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, by your word, you give light to the soul. Pour out on us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that our hearts and minds may be open to know your truth and your way. Amen. I would venture to guess, and it's really only a guess, that it's been a little while since you've last heard a sermon on Numbers 27. <laughs> it is, after all, not the most familiar text in the Christian Bible. It doesn't appear in the three-year cycle of the Revised Common Lectionary. And even the most studious of Sunday school classes out there, and you know who you are, would dare dip into this part of the canon. And while I haven't yet checked with Margaret, I'm pretty sure that the Surf Shack theme of this year's VBS curriculum does not pick up on the story of Numbers 27. And yet, Numbers 27 fits well with the theme of our Lenten series, wrestling with God. For in this text, we encounter a group of women, the five daughters of a man named Zelophehad, who dare to wrestle with Moses and with God and with the biblical tradition. Now, at this point in the book of Numbers, the Israelites are nearing the end of 40 years of wilderness wandering. These years were marked by disobedience and discord and doubt but now a new generation had come to age, and in chapter 26, the one with, right before the one we read, the Israelites are making their final preparations for entering into the promised land that God had given them through Abraham. It is at this point that we first meet the five daughters of Zelophehad. 
We don't know much about who they are, other than that they were from the tribe of Manasseh, and that their father had died some time ago without any sons. And this little detail, that the father dies without sons, proves to be the whole crux of the story. For you see, when a father died, his land would pass as an inheritance to his sons, not to his widow or to his daughter. And if the father died without sons, then his land would pass to his brothers. And if a man died without brothers or sons, then the land would go to his uncles. This male-to-male transfer of of inheritance, which was known as a patrilineal system, was common throughout the ancient Near Eastern world, and it's assumed and affirmed in the pages of the Old Testament. It was put in place by and large to assure that land would remain within a given family and a tribe from generation to generation. However, it would have put the daughters of Zelophead and others like them in a precarious situation. In a largely agrarian society, not having access to land often meant being without recourse to the basic needs of life. So simply based on their God-given gender, these five daughters were facing, most likely, a life of poverty and a future existence on the margins of society. Faced with these prospects, the daughters of Zelophehad make a bold move. Sometime after the death of their father, they approach Moses, Eliezer the high priest, and the leaders of the congregation and ask for a share of their father's inheritance. In making this bold request, the women are asking essentially two things. One, they're being asked to be treated as sons. And second, they're asking Moses to reinterpret a biblical tradition. It's at this point that I find the text is rather stingy on its details, and we as readers are left to wonder about the backstory leading up to this moment, to this moment when they enter into the tent of meeting and present this request. Was this request the culmination of years or months of conversation and discussion? Had there been town hall meetings or focus groups on the topic? Had these daughters gathered with other women at the well to debate the issues and to discuss their options? Were these five daughters basically working on their own? Or were they representatives of a grassroots movement for equal inheritance rights? We simply don't know. And what about the men of the community at this point? Did any of them join the cause out of an act of solidarity with these women? Or did they actively oppose this idea that the women had? Perhaps out of a fear that this marked the end of Israelite family values? Or perhaps worse, because they feared it put the community on a slippery slope that would lead to questioning other laws and perhaps the authority of the Torah itself? Again, we simply don't know, but I think one thing is for certain. On the verge of entering the Promised Land, of becoming a unified nation of 12 tribes grouped together under a covenant with God, a controversy surrounding a biblical tradition threatened to divide and fracture this community of faith. Maybe Numbers 27 isn't all that unfamiliar after all. Today, there are no shortage of controversial issues involving biblical tradition and interpretation that threaten to divide and fracture the church, women in ministry, 
gay marriage, traditional versus contemporary worship, infant versus adult baptism, the list goes on and on. And this morning, I don't want to talk about any of these issues per se, but I want to talk about how we talk about these issues and what talking about these issues tends to do to us. In my experience, controversies in biblical interpretation tend to drive Christians into one of two camps. On the one hand, there are those who dig in their heels, insist that if the Bible says it, then that settles it. No questions asked. No need for discussion. Motivated by a deep and faithful respect for biblical authority, people in this camp often respond to controversy by simply claiming that the Bible is on their side without qualification, and giving little reflection to the fact that the Bible says a lot of different things, and what it says sometimes does not easily settle the complicated questions facing our society today. Now, on the other hand, there are those who are deeply troubled and sometimes even a bit embarrassed by aspects of the biblical tradition, particularly those aspects that deal with violence or the treatment of women and the like. Driven by a deep concern for love and justice, they feel compelled to leave aside parts of the Bible or at least downplay its importance in contemporary Christian faith and practice. For them, while the Bible contains a kernel of divinely inspired good news, it also is surrounded by a husk of outdated ideas and laws that merely reflect an ancient culture and not God's will for the world. These camps, not surprisingly, often end up reaching radically different conclusions. But I would contend that their process is the same, and it's flawed in the same way. You see, both camps, the more conservative one and the more liberal one, both camps essentially stop wrestling with Scripture. The more conservative camp sees wrestling with Scripture at times as a type of rejection of biblical authority. As such, that camp often refuses to ask tough questions about the Bible or to acknowledge that texts about violence and the treatment of women often feel out of step with Jesus' message and ministry. The more liberal camp also tends stop, to stop wrestling with Scripture, not because they are unwilling to ask tough questions or acknowledge the Bible's complexities, but simply because they stop talking about the Bible altogether. When it comes to articulating Christian faith, theology, and identity, the Bible is left almost completely out of the conversation. And this, I think, creates an even bigger problem. For when we stop wrestling with Scripture, we tend to stop wrestling with our fellow believers. We resort to overgeneralizing labels. We take out our liberal locators and our fundamentalist finders, and we seek to draw stark lines between us and them, those like us and those not like us. We pack our bags and head for a different church, and we cease having meaningful conversations, honest conversations, about the Bible and its interpretation. It's no exaggeration, I think, to say that the church cannot flourish if we retreat to one of these two camps and if we refuse to wrestle with this strange and wondrous text we call Scripture. Fortunately, I think Numbers 27 presents a healthier picture and a healthier model of what it looks like for a community of faith to wrestle with Scripture 
and to wrestle with one another. Specifically, I think there are three things we can learn from this passage as a model for this sort of wrestling. First, the women don't ever walk away from their community. Yes, they faced an unfair system, and yes, the biblical tradition did not seem to be on their side at first. And yet, instead of disengaging, instead of packing their bags and going elsewhere, the texts tell us that they approach God at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting was the precursor to the temple. It was the place where God's presence and glory most fully dwelled. And it was from the entrance of the tent that God gave Moses many of the laws that governed Israel's life with one another. There at the tent of meeting, the women enter a daring but faith-filled space. In boldness, they question the biblical tradition about land inheritance, but they do so literally facing God and facing Moses. And isn't this what wrestling is all about? Not walking away from the things that we don't like, but facing them and engaging it front on. The second thing to note, I think, is how Moses responds to this request. He could have easily interpreted the women's coming to the tent of meeting as a form of rebellion. After all, the book of Numbers is filled with rebellions, and many of them aimed particularly at Moses' leadership. It would have been understandable if he was on edge at this point. Or he could have nipped their question in the bud by simply repeating back to them that his hands are tied. The tradition says what the tradition says. Nothing else can be done. But instead, Moses takes their question seriously. Even though God had spoken to him face to face on Mount Sinai, even though God had given him the Ten Commandments literally written in stone tablets, Moses remained open to understanding the biblical tradition in a new way. He knew their request warranted a conversation with God. And so he brings the case before the Lord in the tent of meeting, and God says this, the daughters of Zelophehad are right in what they are saying. You shall indeed let them possess an inheritance among their father's brothers and pass the inheritance of their father onto them. What a remarkable and surprising story this is. The Bible itself is bearing witness to a process of rethinking biblical tradition out of a concern for what is just and fair for a given community of faith. Rather than silencing the women, Moses keeps the conversation going. And I have no doubt that he walked away a changed man, a changed leader, and perhaps also a changed reader of Scripture. Maybe God's decision prompted Moses to see that this system of inheritance was out of step with the fact that humanity was created in God's image, male and female, equally and fully. Or maybe God's decision reminded Moses about laws given at Mount Sinai that placed a priority on dealing justly and kindly with orphans and with widows. Or maybe Moses recalled stories about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and realized that this was not the first time that God made an exception to customs about which children should be blessed and which children should receive the inheritance. Maybe this encounter taught Moses, as it should teach us, that the overarching concerns of a tradition are more important than its particularities. The third thing to note 
is that the story of the daughters of Zelophehad does not end in Numbers 27. Nine chapters later, in Numbers 36, the male leaders of Manasseh, the tribe from which Zelophehad uh, resided, approach Moses with a concern of their own. They say, if the land is given to these women, and then these women go and marry men from other tribes, wouldn't our land, the land given to us by God, wouldn't that land then be transferred to another tribe? You see, for them, it was also an issue of justice. It was also an issue of fairness. And so they bring this matter to Moses, and Moses says, look, I've already adjusted the tradition once. I'm not going back to God. I'm not going to ask again. Forget it. No, Moses doesn't say that. In fact, he takes their concern, as, their question, as seriously as he did the five daughters. He amends the law, in fact, a second time, this time by saying, sure, the women can receive their inheritance, but they should marry within the tribe of Manasseh so as to assure that the land would not be transferred to another tribe. Here in Numbers 27 and Numbers 36, there are no simplistic proof texts given. There's no outright rejection of the biblical tradition. The claims of both the daughter of Zelophehad and the men of their tribe are both treated seriously. The center holds and the unity of the tribe is maintained. What a beautiful and profoundly relevant example for the church today. In the midst of controversies that threaten to divide us, Numbers 27 invites us to maintain attention between preserving the authority of the tradition and preserving the tradition's ability to evolve and adapt out of a concern for God's people. This unfamiliar text teaches us that wrestling with Scripture is a sign of faith, not a lack of it. It reminds us that when we remain open to understanding the Bible in new ways, we are not calling into question biblical tradition. We are simply following the example of Moses that we find in that tradition. And perhaps most of all, Numbers 27 urges us to stick together as a body of Christ, even if, or maybe especially if, issues tend to pull us apart. For in many ways, this sticking together is our most convincing and compelling witness to the truth and power of the gospel in this world today. For this gospel we proclaim should make a difference in how we deal with those with whom we disagree. Thanks be to God. Amen.
May we go with renewed confidence, humility, and commitment to wrestle, to fully engage with God, with God's holy word, and with each other here together in community. And as we go, may the peace and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ keep us today and always. Amen. Thank you.